Well, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Jonathan asked me to preach, he gave me a choice of uh, any of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120, 120 through 134. And it happened to contain one of my favorite images of the Bible. Something that captivated me as a college student who knew nothing about bearing or weaning children. And now that I have the experience on the other side as a mother is even more dear to my heart. And that is the image of a weaned child with its mother. A quick disclaimer, the topic of breastfeeding and uh, weaning can be a tricky subject, especially in mixed company. Um, but if it makes you uncomfortable, either because it's unfamiliar or you have baggage, um, I hope that you'll hang with me and um, just bear with me a little bit because I feel that the ex any explanation will continue to further our understanding of God's word. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because we have to start at the beginning of this psalm and give it some context of this picture that David paints. And this psalm is typically ascribed to David. It is in the psalm, Psalms of Ascent. Psalms or songs that were sung as people were pilgrimaging and journeying to Jerusalem for holy festivals. Now, what would you do if you were walking or riding in a cart or on a donkey for several hours a day, possibly several days on a long road trip? Well, there are no DVD players, no coloring books, no audiobooks or podcasts, not even the radio. So what do you do? You sing. And you sing songs to prepare your heart for the festival that's about to come. It's kind of like starting Christmas music at the beginning of December to prepare us for December 25th and prepare us for Christmas Day. This particular psalm has a slightly different structure than many of the other psalms of ascent. It doesn't mention pilgrimage or Jerusalem. It doesn't make a plea or a request of God. It's simply a setting of one's own heart. One scholar says that the previous psalm, 130, is about waiting, and that Psalm 131 is the working out of that waiting. It's what we do while we wait on God. And what exactly is that? Well, there are two things that, that David addresses in the first verse, and that is pride and ambition. He, um, these are things that David um, deals with. These are things that he has had to work out, that God has had to work out of his heart. First, there's pride, and we all know what that looks like. We've all been prideful. We've seen people be prideful, even if it's only to be prideful that we've gotten rid of the pride in our lives. It's the thing that as soon as you think you've gotten rid of it, it is back again. And more than pride, David says that his eyes are not haughty. And that's a fun word that we don't really use a lot. In English, at least, it means not just proud, but disdainfully proud, not just arrogant, but scornfully arrogant, snobbish. Not just, I'm really great, but you all are beneath me. Haughty takes pride to the next level. It's more than just being prideful, but it turns pride around to disdain for others. And it really, it's a form of hatred stemming from a distorted view of ourselves. 
Why the eyes specifically? Well, in ancient Jewish culture, and we do see this a little bit in our own, eyes were equated to understanding. Sight was often applied to spiritual insight and purity of heart. Darkened eyes or blindness was equated to spiritual corruption. For David to say that his eyes, his spiritual understanding and insight is not haughty, is to see himself, his sinful, tainted human self, clearly, and it brings humility. It's similar to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God in all of his splendor and his glory, and by comparison, he in, in his depravity, and he cries out, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's an element of honesty that David and Isaiah must have about themselves. David, his eyes cannot be haughty because he sees himself as God sees him. It's the realization of this discrepancy and also the compassion that God has on us, like messy, ruinous toddlers. Catch the foreshadowing. He cannot look haughtily on his fellow humans when he himself is amongst them. And he experiences such love and compassion from the splendorous holy God. <clears throat> when we're really honest with ourselves, who we are, how we behave, what we really look like, what are our faults, there is nothing else that we can do but to come to a declaration like Isaiah or to have a reaction like David. I cannot have haughty eyes when I'm honest about myself and my position relative to God. And this is the first step. This is confession, honesty to God and with ourselves, seeing ourselves rightly. And this is where we start to prepare on pilgrimage. This is where we start our service as well. Now, what about ambition? Eugene Peterson translated, translates this verse as, I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he calls this aspirations gone crazy. He says, our American culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. What is described in scripture as a basic sin is now described as basic wisdom. It's the very air that we breathe. And I don't know about you, but uh, from a very young age, I was told that I can do anything. I can be anything. Follow my dreams. The sky is the limit, right? You can be president or an astronaut. Now, I'm thankful that I wasn't put in a box and I wasn't told thing that I couldn't do things simply because I was a girl. But I do think this language does a disservice to our children. It puts unattainable goals. I am not going to be an astronaut um, as a possibility and it makes people believe that they are not living up to it if they can't get there. It makes us always want to strive for more and better and greater. It's a misplaced pursuit. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And that restlessness that we have to do more and have more and be more, to get it all done, it's just misplaced. It should be a restlessness for God and his presence. That's where our ambition should go. 
sure, you can do great things should God call you to do those great things, but you can also do small things, faithful things. The small things matter too. When we've seen God and ourselves rightly and our hearts are not proud and our eyes are not haughty, we can finally see the intrinsic value in simple things, in being content right where we are. Not complacent or resigned giving up, but contented. And this is the second step. After confession, seeing ourselves rightly, we can make peace with that reality on our pilgrimage. We can content ourselves with God alone. David is a king after all, and depending on exactly when he wrote this, this psalm could have been written after he's reached the top, right? It took him a while, but he gets there. He's at the pinnacle of ambition, the king, and he found it empty. Humility is where he found his satisfaction. Dependence on God, confidence in God, that was his satisfaction. And he gives us this mental image to hang on to, an image that is just pregnant with meaning. Now, there's a small minority of theologians who would argue that the word translated as weaned child should actually be something a little softer, like a satisfied child or a child who's finished nursing or just a child with its mother without specifying the age. And I have to admit, I want so badly for that to be true because the relationship between a mother and a nursing infant is actually quite simple. It's very easy and formulaic. If they're hungry, you nurse them. If they're hurt, you nurse them. If they're about to get shots, you nurse them. I like the baby stage. It's easy, especially when you're the mom. And, they, and you are all that they want. Assuming, of course, that you have nothing better to do than sit on the couch and hold a baby 24 hours a day. Um, but I want my relationship with God to be like that, right? Easy. But that's not the relationship that David is describing here, is it? It's not formulaic. It's not easy. He is fighting against the very temptations that are the most struggle for him. The very things that come so naturally to him, pride, arrogance, ruthless ambition, the struggle is anything but easy. It's a lot more like a toddler. And the ancient hearers and singers of the psalm would have most likely nursed their babies well into toddlerhood, um, much like the attached parents and baby wearers of our, our day. They would have toted them around to keep them close for a quick snack, as long as, it's, as it was easier to do that than to shoo them off and get them out from underfoot. So we're talking about toddlers. I'm going to be honest, there aren't a lot of female theologians with personal experience to weigh in on this and expound on this image. And Charles Spurgeon um, has a quite famous sermon on this topic. And I mean no disrespect to him, but I'm not quite sure he gets all the way there. He says that weaning is the first real trouble that we meet when we come, after we come into this world is, the, a time of very, is a time a very terrible one for our little hearts. He goes on to expound about the pain and the suffering that the process of weaning and the peace and calm that waits on the other side. And I don't think he's wrong. And many other theologians say similar things, but I don't think they quite capture all that's going on here. 
The process of weaning is only the beginning of this continuous battle of wills. It misses that the weaned child with its mother is a moment in time, a snapshot, not a continuous state of being. It would be disingenuous to say that once we have calmed and quieted our souls, we remain thus. You know how I know? Because I have a toddler. Toddlerhood is quite possibly one of the most paradoxical stages of all of the developmental stages. Biologically, they have more synapse changes than any other age, including teens going through puberty. So basically, they're like a hormonal teenager in a tiny package without the ability to use words. They are simultaneously the cutest, most precious little angels and the most frustrating and infuriating terrors. They are remarkably clever little velociraptors who figure out door handles and highly irrational fit throwers when you won't let them eat the wireless earbuds. They can cuddle up next to you and caress your face one second and then scream in your ear, go limp and fall to the floor in the next. And we have collectively dubbed these ages the terrible twos and the three nature. And this is the image that David is invoking. This child, who through great effort is now sitting calmly on his mother's lap or laying over her shoulder with his cheek on her collarbone. Now, to my knowledge, there are only three reasons that a child will do this. First is if they are in pain. They're hurt physically, emotionally, includes getting in trouble, all those things. If they are sick and needing comfort, And if they are just beginning to get tired, but they don't quite know it yet, but don't you dare tell them that they're tired or they will definitely not be tired. And if they are already overtired, well, heaven help us all. And there's one, one time that falls out of those three that just feels like a random whim. It's just because they have decided to do so. I would argue that this is when they actually need connection and they don't have the words to tell you. That's just my interpretation of the inexplicably sudden need for cuddles. But that is the image. One important question is what this child is being weaned from. Spurgeon and others assert that weaning is from the world and its riches of sin and pride. However, I would argue that if God is mother in this analogy, the milk cannot be something worldly, something not of him, but rather it must be as Eugene Peterson calls it, his first blessings. The things that he gives us to stoke the fire of our first faith until it is mature and can stand on its own. To go back to Eugene Peterson, he says that in the early stages of Christian belief, it is not in, are, they are not infrequently marked with miraculous signs and exhilarations of spirit, but as discipleship continues, the sensible comforts gradually disappear. For God does not want us neurotically dependent on him, but willingly trusting him. That's where we are. There's a hip hop group called The Beautiful Eulogy, and they have a song called Messiah, um, which contains this line that's striking to me every time. When a good God gives good gifts, we generally tend to twist the list and take the good good gifts that God tends to give and make general gods out of gifts. 
And God does not want us to love him for the good gifts that he gives or the miracles or the feelings that we get, as is our tendency, but for he himself. And this is what David is talking about. What happens when God removes his blessings? What happens when things don't turn out all right? When there's no heartbeat, when the cancer comes back, when the fire takes everything. When we come to this point in our discipleship, it feels like God has abandoned us or that we've done something wrong in the same way that the baby might feel that way as they're being weaned. But it's possible that we've actually done nothing wrong and we're simply being weaned from the things that God has given us in our early faith so that we can see God properly and ourselves properly with clear, unhaughty eyes. We can content ourselves and him alone and make peace with our reality. David knew tragedy. He knew pain and loss. He writes about them a lot in the Psalms. When the good God who normally gives good gifts withholds those good gifts that we've made gods out of, how will we respond? Will we respond with a tantrum on the floor, flinging our head about wildly and throwing anything that we can get our hands on? Or will we long for connection with our mother and simply rest on God's shoulder? The funny thing is with most toddlers that their tantrums do play themselves out and they will let you hold them and offer comfort afterwards, even without the earbuds that are not good for the digestive system. And sometimes they still have those little spasms of breath from their sobs. You know, it doesn't say that David didn't first throw a tantrum. In fact, he has calmed and quieted his soul as though it had been in a frenzy. You don't need to calm what's already calm. But he'd finished his tantrum and that is over. He's left it. He is going to go rest with his mother in a contented, resigned yielding of control. And that is what David paints this picture of. You know, there's a New Testament picture of this very thing too in Jesus. He is not prideful. He empties himself and takes on the form of a servant, as it says in Philippians. His eyes are not haughty, but full of compassion. How many times does it say he had compassion on them? He does not concern himself with ambition. He could have overthrown Rome with a word, but that was not his goal. He could have risen through the ranks of the Pharisees until he was a great and respected teacher, but he didn't. He didn't collect worldly treasures, but he walked in great faithfulness so close to the Father that their wills aligned. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not throw a toddler-style tantrum, but he did beg God for another way. Luke said he was in so much turmoil and anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood, and Mark says that he fell to the ground and prayed. Had he been prideful, he would have said, this isn't worth it. I am better than this. I am the son of God, and I don't have to put up with this. But he doesn't. He calms and quiets his soul like a weaned child with its mother, and he gets up and he says, okay, it's time. And he goes to meet the men who would kill him. David sums all of this up nicely with the last line, put your hope in God. And this is the conclusion. This is the goal. 
of all of this, the reason to humble ourselves, to see ourselves rightly, to put away selfish ambition, to calm and quiet our souls, is that we might find our satisfaction in God alone. As we teach our kids in the catechism, he is our only hope in life and death. Let's pray. Father, content our hearts. Help us to calm and quiet our souls.